Hi everyone and welcome to the Science Ready podcast where I talk to amazing women in science, music and the arts. Today I have the, the honor to have um, Lucy De Silvio on the podcast who's the professor of tissue engineering at King's College, King's College London um, and she's based in the Center for Oral, Clinical and Translational Sciences. Um, Lucy's research is focused on a high quality science based on the regeneration of tissues using stem cell technology and its translation and application for specific clinical problems related to oral, craniofacial and orthopedics. Also biocompatibility of novel materials, bioreactors and cell material interactions. And so without further ado and um, I'll Hi Lucy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank um, you very much for inviting me. So I, I gave a short intro about you. Is there anything mm. that you wanted to add there about your work? Or I think just to kind of focus it a little. Mm, yeah. I'm actually, my first training is a biochemist, yeah. but I would probably um, call myself a biochemist stroke cell biologist. Mm. And my main focus is on uh, understanding the interplay between cells and biomaterials for tissue engineering strategies for clinical translation. Okay. Okay, uh, that pretty much summarizes what the group does. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that's really interesting. I'm, I mean, as someone who has a background in biomaterials myself, I'm very excited to kind of learn more about your journey as well. And like currently, so how I came across you as a as a professor and as a researcher uh, working within the field is. Uh, through the Science Gallery uh, exhibition mm -hmm. here in London um, that focuses basically on on implants or spare parts, spare parts. or organs, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And I saw your amazing, um, basically your amazing um, work that you exhibit there. So kind of could you go into a bit more detail how you went from your work as a researcher within tissue engineering, biomaterials, to uh, like a fascination towards the exhibition at the Science Gallery. I will let you, like, let you tell us a the bit story. more about that. Okay. Yeah. So um, my group at the moment currently focuses on developing innovative tissue engineering systems. Mm. Um, and we work on cellular and acellular scaffolds. Yeah. And uh, I'll explain that in a little bit more detail, but just how the story evolved. Um, I actually started life off as a biochemist. Mm -hmm. So I did all my training is UK, London. I've never moved out of London. I'm a yeah. London girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, old girl now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I worked predominantly as a biochemist for the first 12 years of my mm. professional career in what was then the Middlesex Hospital in Mortimer Street in the endocrine, metabolic and endocrine unit. And I was working with children who had growth disorders. Most of my research there was um, clinical research mm. with uh, the paediatric team, the endocrinology team. Mm. And I got interested in growth because a lot of my research is about stimulating repair and regeneration, so mm -hmm. growth of new tissues. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working with children who had growth disorders, and basically at the time, they were being given growth hormone to help them grow before they had their pubertal spurts. Mm -hmm. And whilst I was there, um, we had an invited speaker give a seminar, and she was an academic. And um, she was obviously got interested in the fact that I was looking at growth hormone, and what she was trying to do was to use materials, orthopedic materials, and enhance their activity mm -hmm. so that they weren't just a grouting and a packing, but they actually had a biological function. Mm -hmm. And so she started putting growth hormone in materials and said to me, well, if you're measuring growth hormone in children, you must have a very sensitive method mm -hmm. to measure. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, to cut a long story short, I started doing some work with her, looking at the release studies, measuring these growth hormones. And we published quite a few papers together. Mm -hmm. And then she said to me one day, what are you actually doing here? She said to me, you know, you need to be an academic. You need to come in, in, in that kind of environment. And I said to her at the time, um, you know, I'm being paid a salary here. I can't go back to being a student. I've been there nearly 12 years. Mm -hmm. And so she said, well, you know, we could employ you as a, a researcher or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you could do your PhD part-time. Well, she convinced me. And I um, worked for the Interdisciplinary Research Centre for Biomedical Materials mm -hmm. under the directorship of Professor Bonfield. We just won a big EPSRC 12 million grant, so mm -hmm. everything was just starting afresh. And being the biology arm of that, it was fantastic, because I went in, when I started my PhD, I'd already published about 40, 50 papers. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just kind of a dream almost to just yeah. slip in. And I was still working as a researcher and doing, I registered for a part-time PhD, but I finished it in four years. Yeah. But I have to say it cost me. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know what weekends were, I didn't know, everything just rolled. Mm. 
Mondays, so the following week was just one complete rotation. Yeah, yeah. But got my PhD, and she was awarded in a chair. She moved to Nottingham, and I automatically took over the running of the orthopaedic uh, bachelor degree. Okay. So I became the head of the course. Okay. And had my own group. The group started growing. It was the boom of European projects, Framework 5, Framework 7, and I had a boom time. It was really the peak of my career. Mm -hmm. So lots of things took off. And I have to say our director, uh, Professor Bonfield, um, gave us a free reign, if you mm -hmm. like, to create our own collections, to create our own opportunities. And it was probably the most prolific and fruitful and enjoyable part of my career. Mm -hmm. Being on the European projects, it meant you travelled for your meetings mm -hmm. in all the European countries, um, and it grew, it grew like a family. Mm -hmm. And even to this very day, I still have very strong connections with people I met in that journey. Mm -hmm. And I've been there uh, 12 years as a lecturer, well, PhD and lecturer, and, uh, and then I was told that at King's they were looking for to set up a tissue engineering group. Mm -hmm. And I was given um, sort of a little, a little whisper in my ear that might be creating a position that they thought I was suited for. And so when it was actually advertised, I had everything ready, boom, boom, boom. So I submitted my application. I had quite a hard, tough um, interview. I think I might have been the only woman that was interviewed. But I'm very pleased to say I got the job. Yeah. And um, the rest is history, as they say, because I started building up the lab. I brought two of my European grants here with me. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to just immediately start off with students, some money. And that kind of built up yeah. this time. Yeah. And then I started traveling through the ladder of academic ladder. Senior lecturer, reader. I got my chair in 2003, I think. And uh, became head of department uh, 2011 and uh, sort of developed my own group here mm. and I've always been very much into applied research when I was at Stanmore I worked at the Institute of Orthopaedics so very much um, patient orientated working with I've always worked with clinicians mm. always in a kind of medical environment mm. and when I came here equally so although I've moved up the body from the knee to the hip to the face mm -hmm. to the head mm -hmm. Regenerating, repairing the tissue, the fundamental concepts are the same. Mm -hmm. And so here I work very much with oral and head and neck surgeons, and mm -hmm. they have extremely challenging patients who've had traumas and a lot of cancer. Mm -hmm. There's a very big cancer unit. Yeah. And so my work on regenerating, repairing tissues has been predominantly heart tissue, bone mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. of my life. Yes. But obviously, tissues don't exist in isolation, they interface with yeah. other tissues. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at interfacial biology, the you know, reaction of soft and hard tissues. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of these cases, they are very challenging because enormous amounts of tissue are lost. So mm -hmm. people you lose like their whole jaw or a very big part of their face. And to be able to reconstruct that from your own tissues, autologous tissue, is near impossible. Yeah. So consequently, we're always look, looking for materials, how these materials interface with the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. They've got to be compatible, yeah. uh, integrate, and most importantly, the biggest challenge is vascularize. They've got to vascularize. If you mm -hmm. don't have a vascularized tissue, mm -hmm. basically it's a dead tissue. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the stimulus for me has always been, my motivation has always been, I want to see the end benefit and it's the patient benefit mm. that keeps me going and mm. that's the biggest thrill I still feel now in my work yeah, through yeah. my work. What, what was the bit because you I work with clinicians today as well and obviously patients outcomes are kind of the most important thing and what was what has been for you the main kind of learning curve from working with clinicians and in the medical environment as an academic uh, being based at a hospital as yeah, well. Then. That's it, that's yeah. the other thing. Uh, I've been extremely fortunate that my entire professional life I've worked in hospitals. Mm. I've always been based in a hospital. So you see, you know, one of my very first projects at Stanmore was discussed on the serviette in Starbuck mm -hmm. with an orthopaedic surgeon mm -hmm. who we were talking about cartilage and repairing cartilage and we drew the we drew the project on a serviette and then he ended up doing a PhD with me as yeah. it happens on that particular subject about regenerating cartilage, mm. um, I think it's important to be able to see the bigger perspective. Mm. I think in science, there's this danger that you can become so blinkered and mm. isolated in your own area that you don't, you don't see the bigger picture. Mm. And I think working with clinicians allows you to do that, mm. just like working with artists has allowed me to 
look at my creative side as a scientist mm -hmm. and say, you know, gosh, I should, I never thought of looking at it that mm -hmm. way. And so I think the biggest um, stimulus, if you like, and motivation is that they come to you with a challenge. They say, you know, for example, when I was at Stanmore, one of the major issues was non-union fractures. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we improve this, um, especially in the elderly patients, in patients for whatever reasons are immunocompromised and not, how can we enhance that? Mm -hmm. And so I think looking at, they bring the challenge, and in a sense they're looking to you, well, what's the solution? What can mm -hmm. we do? Mm -hmm. And I think it's that motivational direct question if you like mm -hmm. there must be something we can do to improve that yeah so i think for me that's the that's the, what i gain from working with yeah them. the main driver yeah. basically yeah. which is obviously yeah they work in a real world world setting while in a lab space obviously you might be connected but it's not the real world right. challenge that you get yeah. directly yeah. yeah um so that's very interesting to hear as well kind yeah. of how that yeah. bridge is and then well the bridge with the artists then as well obviously because so you're currently exhibiting new organs of creation well, the, the um, project. I actually, I actually have two projects there. Okay, yeah, yeah. I so, have yeah. the um, organs of creation. I was approached by the um, the engagement artists mm -hmm. are Burton Nitter, mm -hmm. um, known to be Michael Amichigo. Yeah. Fantastic, um, two fantastic artists who are so super motivational and excited that they get me excited about anything. Yeah, yeah. And they came to see me because they'd heard that I'd worked with scientists before. And my first encounter working with a scientist, um, I almost pushed the poor person out of my office saying, you've got completely the wrong department. She rang me first, it was Amy Condon from Central St. Martin's. Yeah, yeah. And she rang me and she said, <clears throat> oh, can I come and see you? Um, I've got some ideas on a project. And I said, she said, I'm from Central St. Martins. I said, oh, I think you've got the wrong department. She said, no, no, I assure you, it's you I want to talk to. I said, but I'm a scientist. I work on engineering tissues and materials. She said, no, no, it's you I want to see. <laughs> you know, she was pretty persistent. And she came and we started talking. She's a, text, a textile mm -hmm. artist. Yeah. And, and she started talking about weaving and uh, fabricating different textiles and how you use different weaves, a clothes weaver, embroidery. And I said... As she was talking, I, I was thinking, you know, we're developing materials because we want to direct cells, we want to direct tissues, we want to, to create a hierarchical structure, mm. which if you think, a textile designer does just that. They mm. start off with the template basic weave mm. and then emboss on that. Mm. That's what we're doing. Yeah. And then she opened my eyes and I said, yeah, yeah, okay, well, I'll think about it, I'll think about it. And then she was persistent. I'll give her that. Yeah. She was persistent. <laughs> so she came here and she bought me a few samples and she said, look, could we at least try these? So she'd, she'd woven a few pieces of fabric and, uh, and she'd embossed certain stitches on mm -hmm. them and we sterilised them. We put some cells on them and, whoa, we had cells growing in the direction of the embroidered motives on that we were sort of directing the cells mm -hmm. by the embroidery and the fabric so she got super excited and said you know she was going to show her supervisor her supervisor and tutor at Central Martins she came back a few weeks later and said I want to do a PhD <laughs> yeah. so she started doing a PhD yeah. with me and the journey that we traveled together was amazing absolutely amazing she came into the lab and being very artistic she looked at things obviously we had to train her to work in aseptic because sure. artists artists can throw stuff around yeah, anywhere yeah. but she was an amazingly good very very quick at grasping the techniques mm -hmm. and um, she was an amazing bubbly character she was very popular in the lab and she very soon became very very skilled at growing cells mm -hmm. on these different fabrics then she started getting more and more adventurous creating hybrid materials mm -hmm. like stitching various stones quartz stones and little pearl um, buttons on, on fabrics yeah. uh, and noticed that these either uh, attracted the cells towards them or actually caused the cells to move away mm -hmm. so again this is what we're doing in materials because there are materials where we don't want cells to attach mm -hmm. there are materials where we do want cells mm -hmm. to attach so she's simulating what nature's doing anyway yeah. so I'm very pleased to say that um, she's extremely well she's written up her PhD yeah. I'm hoping it's been submitted already but I've corrected it the different various drafts have come and gone and in mm -hmm. theory she should have submitted that now yeah and um which is great. I, I, I love the 
multidisciplinary of science. Well, I would never, you. had I not been open and receptive, or had she not been so pushy, I would have pushed her out and said, yeah. this one was crazy. I have to say, when she first came into the lab and started working with me, my colleagues were rather sceptical and thought I'd gone off my head. You know, what is she doing with an artist, an artist in the soul lab? But as she worked and became more and more proficient, mm -hmm. and they realised that they could have quite creative conversations mm -hmm. with her, mm -hmm. she had a completely different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. um, they began to realise that perhaps it wasn't such a silly idea after all. And so, um, Bert and Nitta, Michael and Michiko, had heard about Amy coming to work with me, and they came to talk to me. And they really um, stimulated me with this amazing concept that they wanted to create um, a project around the voice of the people. Mm -hmm. So, and they said, well, could you grow a, a voice box? I said, oh, that's a big ask. You know, we can stimulate cells to create certain tissues. Be asking me to grow a voice box? And they said, oh, no, it would be a symbolic um, voice box. And I said, but if you're asking me to grow it, I have to actually use and adopt the same concepts I would if I were doing it as an actual larynx, mm. if, I were, if I was actually doing a tissue-engineered system. And so... Um, it got more and more exciting because we got so many people involved. We got um, an anatomist involved. We got a, uh, an opera singer involved. We've got um, an ENT surgeon involved. Mm -hmm. And the we had many, many uh, highly stimulating conversations. And when I was with them, I forgot who I was and I forgot the lab and I forgot everything else because it, it's just a whole new world. Mm -hmm. They just make you look at things and say, I've never really, I've never really considered that. Yeah. So um, anyway, this... Crossing this bridge between science and art became a very easy thing for me to do because mm. I'd already done it with Amy, you know, four or five, she did a PhD part-time, so six years she'd sort of been around. And uh, so I got excited and I said, yeah, okay. And they had this amazing concept that um, this would be symbolic of the voice of the nation. Can we grow a united voice? Is there such a thing as a united voice? Can people find a voice who don't have it? through this sort of creative interaction. Mm. And what also they allowed me to do is to use art as a form of um, um, sort of, not collaboration, but conversation with the public mm. on subjects that would be so difficult to have. Mm. They, they demystified research yeah. because, um, you know, people go and they talk about it, oh, what's that? And, oh, how did you do that? Well, you grow cells. That's, is that how you do it in the lab? Yeah, that's how we do it in the lab. Yeah. So it allowed me to, to sort of add a creative flair, but through that creative flair, be able to communicate my science. Because mm -hmm. as, as you know yourself, as a scientist, we're always talking to like people, aren't we? Mm. You go to a conference, you give a lecture, you give a talk, and it's the people who are in your field or similar fields. You write a paper, it goes to a journal, but you never actually have the opportunity to inform the general public mm. well actually you know this is what because I think especially tissue engineering there's a lot of fear out there that people think oh you know they grow things in the lab and they clone and they create monsters and all sorts of things and I think to actually demystify that to simplify that in a way that people could just look at it and understand mm. it's tremendous it's a tremendous way of communicating with the lay audience yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and that's why I love the the science gallery as yeah. well and their approach because it's all about public engagement is, and the dissemination is, is. of of research uh, linked with art then as well yeah. and being able to just convey a message that is understandable for everyone yeah. um, what was also very nice was that they were very keen to be involved from the very start so they've lived the whole biological aspect, the whole lab aspect, the whole research aspect with me. They've come in from the very beginning when the 3D... Um, uh, the larynx is anatomically the same as the human larynx, except obviously it's on a smaller scale. It's been 3D printed by Dr. Cowell's group here in our, yeah. our centre. Yeah. Um, and it's PLA, so it is a degradable material, but obviously it's not going to degrade in the lifetime of the project, yeah, yeah. of the exhibition. And they were with me, and we went through the whole preparation, and I took them through the steps exactly as if I were going to grow this for a medical implant. Mm -hmm. And so they came to see the cells, uh, they came to observe and record seeding the cells onto this scaffold, and then I would send them like sort of updates <laughs> every other day, send them a picture, yeah, do you yeah. want to see what they're doing? <laughs> and we did sort of fluorescent staining so they could oh, see yeah. cells on there, and for them, you know, visual. Because let's face it, I mean, scientists and artists, we both are dependent on what observations. Yeah. Ours are more analytical, empirical. Theirs is more 
um, about empathy and expression, mm. for them to actually be able to see it and mm. describe it, yeah, was great. Yeah, in a visual way. In a visual way. Yeah, that's kind of the only way you could see how cells are migrating. For example, sure. like changing kind of their structures or yeah, their, yeah, yeah. Um, or actually growing while spreading across yeah. the material that you've basically. Yeah. Put so basically, we grew. I had several made. We grew the first one that's in the exhibition. Mm -hmm. uh, we grew that for cells on them for about a month. These were then stained, obviously, the connective tissue staining for the cells mm -hmm. that formed a sheet around it. Mm -hmm. And then they were obviously fixed to go into mm -hmm. the exhibition. Uh, we've got another one now that's been going for three months. Mm -hmm. And you can see the distinct difference between the one month and the three months. Yeah. Because obviously with histochemical staining, we can detect an awful lot more cells mm -hmm. on there. So it's been a very exciting journey and I'm really looking forward to the live performance on May the 8th. Yeah, absolutely. So I will try to make it then as well because that would be really... They so actually nice bring it. a singer. Yeah, yeah. they actually bring it. So going back to the opera and the yeah. concept of their organs of creation, yeah, yeah. Um, they were very... Because we had lots of discussions about what stimulates cells mm. and I told them that in my very early years at in the Institute of Orthopedics, I worked with exposing cells to different frequencies, mm -hmm. and that cells are uh, responsive to their environment, be it mechanical, biological, physical, and, and I told them that I'd been working with using different frequencies to stimulate cells. And if you think about it, when we're walking, running, we're stimulating our bone cells to remodel. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly stimulating. Mm -hmm. When you're growing cells in a lab, they're generally static in a culture dish. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you put them in a bioreactor, they get stimulated. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they got interested in this and said, oh, you know, we've been talking to uh, an ENT surgeon and then we were talking to uh, the, uh, an opera singer, somebody who writes music, and they were talking about all the different frequencies and how you can... Um, it's to do with algorithms and how they can basically dissect out so you get to the actual fundamental algorithm that creates that note. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, you know, maybe we could use an opera singer and go right down to the algorithm that actually is stimulating the cells. So at this live performance, they're going to bring this um, opera singer in and they're going to actually do that, that apparently we should be able to feel that frequency in our gut. Yeah. So that'll be exciting. It will be amazing, yeah, yeah. In general, I mean, it will be just amazing. Well, to convey the message as well, like to have people understand what it, what effect it could have. And of course, be. the whole point is uh, to engage the public. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So will you be like at the front there, or like part well, of the kind to, of the to be honest, team? Yeah, I will. Because sets, to be honest, yeah. I was unsure. I'm traveling for business on. The Thursday, but yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure if I was leaving the Wednesday, and they were very disappointed. But now they found out that I'm here, even though yeah. I'm leaving the next day on a long haul flight. I said I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, I want to, I want to share the, I want to share it oh, with the public. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, again, coming back to being able to like convey something that is used currently, the larynx in a in a clinical setting yeah. is to replace. Um, larynxes that have not been are not functional anymore or have been damaged because of an accident but then also seeing it in a different context mm -hmm. but also seeing them grown there one as a, as a kind of replacement but then seeing it in a different mm -hmm. context I think it's very very interesting it kind of stimulates people as well in terms of going and like learning more mm -hmm. about what you're doing or potentially stimulating young kids to actually yeah. learn more but I think there's it. also a symbolic aspect to mm -hmm. that because one of the things they were interested in is I do a lot of work with trying to reconstitute maxillofacial reconstitution. And I, I usually start off my talk, or whatever lecture I'm giving on the subject, is um, you know, if you think about when we meet somebody, the first impact is when we look at each other. Mm. And so our face is our very first impact on people. It's our expression. It, it, it shows our emotions, how we're feeling. Mm. And that's the first thing that hits you. Mm. So in a sense, that our identity is through our face. You can look at somebody and see, oh, they're in a bad mood today, or whatever, mm. because we, it, it portrays mm. our identity of how we are actually feeling inside. But what about the voice? Mm. You know, you can hear people, people you know and recognise. You can say, oh, I can hear them. Yeah, they're coming down the corridor. Mm -hmm. And so we got on to this fantastic discussion about identity and how somebody who has had a cancer or has had an accident, had a trauma, and even a, an opera singer, it's their livelihood, it's mm. everything. So what an impact it must make on these people mm -hmm. when they lose that very set, that identity of who you are yeah, yeah. and how you speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can convey so many, you were talking about emotions, but through your voice, mm. it's 
everything really if you if you think about the different aspects of what you wouldn't want to lose when something would happen like your voice is everything to mm -hmm. convey any message to convey well to just to, to live and to survive absolutely and, um mm -hmm. but then seeing that linking that back to i guess your project and, and kind of that recreation and, and unifying of a voice as well giving people a voice yeah, actually yeah. back and, the, and going back to women yeah 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 i think it is extremely important because um you know women are sometimes described as kind of meek and gentle and mild and how many women are at very, sit on various boards of various committees of various and sort of excuse me can i have can, i don't think we have to be afraid of using our voice to find ourselves who mm -hmm. we are mm -hmm. we're voicing who we are i have an opinion too will yeah. you actually listen to me as well yeah and i think that that's important as well for a woman to find her voice and be assertive and actually use that voice in an empowering way it's yeah. really important yeah I think that's great, yeah, that's a great message. Well, it is. I think it's important because it's exactly what you say, I mean, you obviously work in an engineering department as well, or kind of um, bioengineering department, I guess, which often is, bioengineering luckily is a bit more female uh, dominated, I guess, compared to the general of engineering fields, but if you're the only woman in a fully male department, and I guess still most senior people they are more male-dominated still. Um, it can be hard, and even if you're very, you wanna have your voice raised mm -hmm. and heard, how, what would you recommend to people? Or how, how have you experienced going through the whole journey? Well, I have becoming to, a head of a department? Well, no, I have to tell you that um, during my very early days in my career, um, it was very much a male-dominated environment. You know, materials were still very much yeah, male-dominated. Yeah. but. Professor Bonfield was very good in mm -hmm. employing women and mm -hmm. actually giving women that chance okay. of, of becoming empowered and leading. Um, so we were very lucky to get into the right kind of environment that mm -hmm. stimulated that behaviour. But mm -hmm. I spent quite a few years um, sitting on various committees and where I was the only woman. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to be heard as being the only woman. And it's amazing how when you're a woman on a committee, they always choose you to be the secretary. Mm. And uh, I found that really hard. Mm. And I thought to myself, actually, why should I be the secretary? Mm. I could be the treasurer, I could be anything else. Why do I have to be the secretary? Because I'm a woman. And I still find a little bit of that today. It hasn't gone away. Mm. I don't think we've changed. Over the years, I don't think we've changed that much. Mm. I mean, if you think of women in academia, 45% of the workforce in academia, female, mm -hmm. only 20% ever reach professorial level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The leaky pipeline. Yeah. I yeah. mean, nature has made it that we are the ones who have to go out and get married and have babies. We don't have to, but I mean, women do. So you have this gap in your career. And to be able to come back and insert yourself back into the system mm -hmm. and sort of you feel like you're constantly lagging behind. Mm -hmm. But even more so, um, to get promoted. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we, as women, in a sense, we're our own worst enemies. Because how many women look at a job advert and read the job advert and say, oh, well, I can only do, I can do eight of those mm -hmm. ten things. And a man will look mm -hmm. at it and he'll be able to do three and he'll say, yeah, I can go for this. Mm -hmm. Because we, as women, I think it comes naturally that we just don't ever think we're as good as. So I think really it's our responsibility to show I'm as good as anybody else at this and I yeah. can go for this job and I can show them at an interview that I, I'm worthy of the job. Yeah. So in a sense it's this indoctrination that we are sort of the weaker sex and oh yeah, you know, you will make some progression that it's for us to prove that mm. and stand up for ourselves yeah, and yeah. be who, who we are. Yeah. And even when I was at management level, uh, there was still a predominance of, of men, of males. So even then, you still felt like, you know, the Athena Swan Charter in 2005 helped to sort of bring about some equality in this gender. But I still think there's an awful lot that can be done. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, because you mentioned it, I guess, as well, and, and I guess having seen it in the past, is that once you go out of academia, as a woman, I guess in general, but especially then as a woman, and you, you haven't published, for example, you go and work for industry, let's say you work yeah. for a pharma company or any company. I mean, all of those things will influence. You want to go back, you basically are at the bottom of yeah. the ladder, and so it's very hard yeah. to it get... It is hard to get back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, Because uh, it's hard. I think an academic life is really hard. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and today I'm watching sort of a younger early career research mm -hmm. and uh, in a sense I was quite lucky the way mine worked out because I'd worked and I went into it, I was already working, so I was, if you like, a mature student really. And um, we had just got the big grants and we had all the European projects coming in. I look at my young, some of the young team, some of the young people working here, and the competition is phenomenal now. There is so much pressure um, that I think sometimes you've got to have a certain amount of resilience to, to actually stand up to that and to survive in this mm -hmm. kind of environment. Mm -hmm. It's become very much sort of a, you know, a, a same kind of environment as a city really, cutthroat, mm -hmm. it really has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in a sense that's putting a lot of people off. They either move, I've had some really good PhD students who've moved out, one's become a patent attorney, um, several of them have gone into industry. I'm not saying that the pressure is less, but that sort of cutthroat business of, you know, competition for grants and positions and promotion and papers and publications, mm. uh, it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, and then to keep the focus on what you actually want to achieve with the research, which often takes longer. Yeah, it does. To actually publish something. Especially, in the, field, especially in the field that we're in. Uh, we're, exactly, in yeah. we're in translational research. Yeah, yeah. And so we're somewhere between applied and clinical translation yeah, yeah. and you might have a really good material you might have a really good technology but you've got to find somebody who's going to support that technology mm -hmm. and you fall in that crack where if you can't find a company who's interested in what you've developed you know as an academic you can't afford to, to, to go through the regulations and all the very regulatory um, work that needs to be done to get it to a clinic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so this you go into this kind of to the valley of death, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and you just can't seem to climb out of that because you know it's there. You've seen it. You've done some of the in vivo work, and but you've still got to find somebody who is going to support that through to clinical translation. Yeah, yeah. What, where do you see the pain points there? Because obviously, there's incredibly high cost linked to regulatory approval, doing long term clinical studies with like massive amount of people. Well, at the university, you might have like maybe a smaller patient group. Is there a way, because what I think is very sad to many research that happens at the university now is that there's amazing research going on, but because of these reasons, a lot of it just stays within the university Church and never goes great. out and never basically is given to people that could benefit from it incredibly. Yeah, yeah. And well, I can tell you that from my career span. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. look back at things yeah, yeah. that we did then that people are kind of doing now and I think, but we did that 10 years ago. Why did it ever go anywhere? Um, I think the major issue is that um, there's not enough support in universities for that. Um, you know, where you have people who, or departments who can help you channel that into a structured clinical trial, but there should also be money. Mm -hmm. You know, there should be money pumped mm -hmm. into that area. Mm -hmm. And I think really it's that deficit that if you can't find somebody who's willing to, you know, just do uh, pattern searches and things, mm -hmm. and it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. And you are limited by your institution as mm. to just how much or how little they contribute to doing things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's very difficult to be able to do that on grant money. <laughs> no, no, and it's often not allowed as no, well. exactly. So, like, so it yeah, yeah. falls into this valley of death. Yeah and, yeah. and it stays, and you look back and you think, well, we did that 10 years ago. It could have been out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a difficult area to be in. Yeah, yeah. You can see the potential, and you can see where it's going, but it needs that support yeah financial yeah. and support. because you need to have the, the validation which often lasts a couple of years before you actually can have absolutely, it absolutely to yeah. see proof that it's safe and everything to be used like the larynx that is actually yeah can yeah. be yeah. can replace uh an infected one the actual yeah. one so so but it is amazing work that you're doing and i think it's it's incredibly fascinating like just going back i guess because i mean you talked about you you started as a biochemist. Mm. How like like when you were growing up, basically, were, did you have in mind? Well, this is what I want to do, or well, I have a, was it? Yeah, yeah, I have an interesting have story said, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. as you probably gather by my name, I'm not English. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not. I'm actually Luciana, not Lucy. Okay, but you know how yeah, it is. Yeah. You grow up, and everyone calls you Lucy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually Lulu to the family. Okay, so yeah, I'm yeah. known by three different names. And I, I'm a typical story of an immigrant family. My father came over in 1962, like all, we come from a 
lovely picturesque little village in the Abruzzo region in Italy. And my father came over here in 62, like all immigrants, to a, a better life for his family and children. And um, basically we grew up here. All our education was British, but my father was adamant that at home we retained our Italian culture, our Italian language. And um, his aspiration and his dream was to be able to give his children what he wasn't able to do. He was an extremely intelligent person, uh, but obviously because of the constraints, he couldn't actually study. My father mm -hmm. was a tailor, a bespoke tailor, okay. an absolute artist yeah, yeah. in his creation. But what he did allow us to do is allow us all to develop in our own person who we are. He was very supportive, inspirational as a father, and um, you know he'd give us his opinion, but he allowed us to make mistakes as well, mm -hmm. and then sort of not quite say, well, I told you so, but you'd kind of work it out for mm -hmm. yourself. And so, um, with regard to whether I've always been interested in this field, uh, from a little child, I always thought, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be whatever, and um, I'll make you laugh, because my mother used to buy, in those days, you bought your own chickens, and you had to clean them and do whatever, and I used to spend a long time peering at it, and pulling out all uh, the organs, and sort of see, it, dissecting yeah. it, and then it would get roasted for something. Yeah. <laughs> but, always. I've never wanted to do anything in my life than look, you know, understand science, biology, medicine, mm. for the benefit of patients. That's always mm. been my drive, and it mm. still is now, even mm. almost at the end of my career. Yeah. And it's sort of seen that end point where you're, that's been my motivation and my drive. Yeah, yeah. And so when I worked at the Middlesex, um, I, my first degree was in biochemistry, and I worked in the metabolic and endocrine unit. And as I said, it was mostly looking at doing various metabolic and endocrine tests on patients. And then when I moved into academia, I kind of carried that through because it didn't change my motivation. Mm -hmm. It didn't change what inspired me. Mm -hmm. And it's always been about repairing and regenerating tissue. Mm -hmm. And I've I've never wanted to do anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, um, if we can look a bit in the future, let's say, um, or f well, whether it goes by or far in the future, because you work in the field of tissue engineering, we already went into a bit like the controversy that sometimes today it's just because of kind of I guess the, the lack of information that exists it around it. It's, ju it's just lack of information. But obviously it's it's incredibly valuable and, and a lot of people might have already a replacement somewhere whether it's an implant or whether it's replacement of a tooth in some way like a graft. Um, where do you see the fields evolve and what do you think is missing today and what you think will be kind of very important in the future going forward. I yeah. think that um, tissue engineering offers uh, an alternative to sort of organ transplantation. And but however, having said that, I will cautiously say I think it's still very much in a research phase. Mm. But I do not see it as something that will not in the future become a reality. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are lots of people looking at different mechanisms of, you know, how you can regenerate tissues, how you can control them. I think the biggest hurdle at least in my field, is to achieve vascularization. Because, you know, you can grow bone nodules in a dish and that's fine, but the real test comes in when that implant, which is a live cellular mm -hmm. implant, is replaced back in the body, can it integrate, can it become vascularized? Mm -hmm. So I think from a tissue engineering perspective, at least in my field, is the biggest challenge is getting the vascularization right. And mm -hmm. there are loads of groups, including my own, who are looking at you know, vascularization, angiogenesis, which cells are switching on and understanding the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing that's really important is that we've got to work in a multidisciplinary manner mm -hmm. because, you know, somebody can just work at uh, looking at signaling molecules, whatever, but we need to be able to incorporate that knowledge and I'm going to develop a material that's going to have these kind of, it's going to give these signals to the cells mm -hmm. to become that cell, to become that tissue. Mm -hmm. So I think working as a multidisciplinary team is highly important. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as something that is that distant because they have tried various, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, transplantations yeah, like tissues. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the larynx, the, the skin yeah. is highly successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I don't think it's that far away. But it's just getting all the other bits right mm -hmm. um, so that we don't have problems with rejection and we do get vascularization. So it's understanding those concepts. But it's a tremendous amount of work going on in so many universities and research institutions. So I don't think it's that distant, that yeah, far yeah, yeah. into the future. 
No, no, I, I think it, it's 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 amazing, kind of the work that is going on across the world, and and but but as you say, obviously it, it is in the early stages. It's just because it needs to be shown that it's actually valid and to be used in a clinical setting, a clinical and, that, setting. and that it's safe and, and, and so on. And I think that's that's very important to go forward. Absolutely. And once that's yeah. I mean, there proven, have, then they yeah, have been a few there have been a few cases reported, yeah. and I think this is scaremongering mm -hmm. amongst the lay audience where perhaps people have been a little bit, you know, too early in their transplantations. Um, they haven't quite understood exactly you know either the material the breakdown products or the consequences mm -hmm. because obviously if you're going to regenerate a tissue if it's a large defect you will initially need some kind of scaffold mm -hmm. and of course if we are genuinely regenerating a tissue that scaffold has to break down mm -hmm. so we need to understand the breakdown products what effects that's going to have on the body mm -hmm. but more importantly the rate at which that scaffold, the architecture breaks down, has to be equal to the rate at which the new tissue is being formed. Mm -hmm. So all of these things need to be, that's where the challenge lies. Yeah, They've yeah. all got to be synchronized so that they're yeah. happening you know, at the same rate and obviously without uh, causing any danger to the patient with yeah. any breakdown products. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I, I mean, I used to work in, in orthopedic implants, for example, and obviously there's lots of problems, there were lots of problems with like wear particles. Yeah. With the metal on metal ones, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then people had, well, there were severe cases of necrosis, so dying course, tissue yeah. around it, which obviously was partly because I guess too few research was being done to actually see that it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so very interesting. Um, so when we go, um, like, what would you, because you said it already before, your. Um, you have a department where you have young female researchers uh, part of it. What would you advise? At the moment, actually, the only females I have in my group are PhD students. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, they will be the future scientists. Absolutely. So, so, so I mean, what advice would you, would you give to them? Because sadly, people are leaving, leaving amazing fields of research behind just because of the well, lack of support often or... Um, what would you give for advice then to go either into careers in academia or stay at least with an R&D if they want to do it, not be afraid of... I yeah. think if we look at kind of statistics, more women tend to go in R&D mm. um, because I'm not saying that it's not as competitive because I'm sure it is, uh, but I think academia is really hard because it's all about continuity because we touched on that. If you go away for mm. a while, you know, whether you're a carer or whether you have a child, for whatever reason, to try and get back in. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are basically, the way that we're valued is publications, grant, mm. you're, you know, I was talking to some people, we were having a drink the other day, and they're non-scientists, and I said, well, you actually, to be a good scientist, you're only as good as your bank balance, <laughs> which is a dreadful way to look at mm. it. But in a sense, it is what it is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You can be absolutely fantastic and be doing fantastic science, but if you're not bringing in the money and the grants, and it might just be because you are in a field where it's very difficult to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it might not be because you're not a good and competent scientist, but mm. because in that particular field, it's really hard to get money. So basically, if you're asking me, would you advise people not to go into? <laughs> I can't do that because I'm also. No, because no, I would never ask that. Because, no, no, yeah. I'm also an advocate for STEM. Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of trial. Yeah, yeah. I go to a lot of schools and I encourage women to come into science. I think what I would say is, you know, there's a whole field out there. Mm. It's engineering. Um, it's technology. It's cellular work. It's uh, you know going to physics. So I think it's to, to look out there and say, there's a whole array of things I could actually do. I don't necessarily have to go and be a hardcore, you know, basic biologist, mm. for argument's sake. Mm. So I think it's to be more open. Mm. Yeah. And also, going back to I think about being a woman, is not to look at something and say, well, that's not really suitable. Yeah, it might well be. Yeah. I was involved in a government STEM net, mm. and I was there on a stage with about 15 most amazing brilliant women far superior to who I am you know CEOs of big companies and some of them said I would never have dreamt that I could have succeeded in this career so it goes back to that 
what I'm saying at the beginning is we shouldn't doubt ourselves that we're not good enough because we don't know if we don't actually try, do we? Yeah. And so I wouldn't discourage them, but it's tough today. Yeah. yeah. I think it's much tougher today than when I started off as a scientist. Yeah, yeah. Simply because, you know, we had a bit of a discussion about cuts in funding mm -hmm. and the constraints today are quite different to the constraints of 30 years ago when I started. Yeah, yeah. And so I also think you've got to have a certain resilience to be able to succeed in this as a career these mm -hmm. days, mm -hmm. which was quite different 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's tough, but I would say if that's what you believe in, then go for go it. Go for it. <laughs> that's a good message to um, to go into the quick, quick fire quiz, I think. Um, I'll just ask you some questions, and it's, it's really kind of to learn more about what you kind of were doing and um, what you're reading and so on. So what are you currently reading, if you're reading anything? I am. Yeah. And um, I jotted these down because I start so many books. Yeah, yeah. And inevitably, the things I read most are theses and reports and grants. Okay, so um, my pleasure reading. And then when I do actually go on holiday, I just want to crash out and just admire the view and do whatever. So I, I don't actually do much reading on holiday. Yeah. Um, you go to airports, you watch people buying all these books, yeah. and I, I never do that because all I do is bring them back home with yeah. me. Um, two, I, I like fiction and I like non-fiction. Um, I also like to keep up my own language, so I like to read in Italian as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got, at the moment, I'll tell you what I've got started. I'm yeah. reading In the Footsteps of Churchill by Richard Holmes. Okay. I love reading history, and I love reading about powerful and influential people. Yeah. And I have a great respect for Churchill. I think he was a man who had great resonance. I love, I, mm. I, you know, his, his era. Um, I love Pablo Neruda. Mm -hmm. I love reading his poetry yeah. and his book, The Passion of Life. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, um, as I said, my own, at the moment I'm reading Elena Ferranti, My Brilliant Friend. And on the plane back from America last week, I watched two episodes because apparently it was serialised on TV. Yeah. So I've got to watch the others now. Yeah. Uh, and that's lovely because it takes me right back to some of my roots in Italy, yeah. and you can visualise some of those What things. is it about? It's about two young girls um, who come from a very poor uh, little village in, in Naples, mm -hmm. and it's this struggle of, um, in society and uh, basically adversity, both being challenged there, very interesting, as girls, yeah, yeah, because totally. it actually starts off with them in a schoolroom where um, there's a competition the teacher, because the girls were segregated from the boys, and there's a competition where the teacher of the girls decides she's going to have a competition with the the, um, the male um, teacher, yeah. and the students are actually put up against each other, a kind of a quiz, who's smarter than the other, and so she's indoctrinating these girls, you can be as good as they are, yeah. you know, so right back yeah. from, I think it's set in about 1940s, yeah. so it's called My Brilliant My Friends. Brilliant Friend, okay, I'll add to the show notes, Elena yeah. Ferranti, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really good, okay. and then um, like I said Pablo Neruda, I like reading Leonardo Sciascia, Italo Calvini, lots of Italian books, I love reading Italian poetry as well, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and Somebody I really love for escapism. If I really want to escape, and probably about the only books I'd read on holiday, sadly she doesn't write anymore, is Rosamund Pilcher. Okay. I love her books because they're just so descriptive and she masterfully transports you. Most of her books are set in Cornwall and Devon and Scotland. Yeah. And I've been to some of the places in her book and I've looked at the place and I thought, I know this place. Yeah, yeah. But I only know it because I read it in her book. Yeah, because it's so descriptive. Yeah, she's she amazing. So I've got shelves and shelves and shelves of beautiful books yeah, yeah but some of them sadly i keep saying when i retire when i retire when i retire um, i think everybody possibly has that problem there i love buying they, it yeah me too and i don't do any of this um what do they call them these um, audiobooks audio i do no Seth, and yeah. also reading Just, on their yeah. kindles and things oh, i sure, love yeah, yeah. holding my pages yeah, yeah, i yeah. love marking where i'm at uh, i love putting a bookmark in i that's that's what I like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I think, yeah, holding that book still is still different. And also for your memory, like visual, you can go back easily, while with a Kindle, it's not that. Yeah. It's not the same. I'm not a great fan of technology. Oh. I still, my students laugh because they're at our meetings, writing everything on their laptops, and I've still got my little book, and I scribble my notes, but I can go right back and say, actually, on that day, we said we were going to be doing this. Yeah, yeah, which it. often, yeah, in Fs or anything else, yeah. so where did I take that note, where did I take yeah, that yeah. note? So, yeah, no, no. I suppose some people say I'm, no old, some people say I'm old fashioned, but I like, I like that 
yeah it. yeah i think it's good as long as it works for you it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's really good it's quite sad really because i think in a way technology has been fantastic in this advancement but i think it's also taken away from the student that ability to be creative to be able to write things down mm. to be able to assimilate things because yeah, everything yeah. is just a press a button press a button press a button yeah when yeah. i was a student i used to have to go to the library photocopy all the papers mm. i wanted to take home and read mm. and they laugh when i say that when i did my thesis I had to go in a dark room and print all my own photographs and stick them in and with an lecture set to put the scale markings, A, B, C letters on my figures yeah. myself. <laughs> no, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember the times of, of libraries still myself as well. And I, I think obviously the technology came, like suddenly you have like the world at your feet that with a click of a button, you're suddenly, yeah. you have that kind of resource and so on, where before it was, but it's true, it kind of, the creativity was different, I think, because you had to search and look and you might not find the same resources as, no. you, as you do today, yeah. but it's yeah. a different it's approach. a different approach. Yeah. But I actually like that approach and I think, in a sense, they're losing some of the ability to actually think because you don't really have to think, you just put it in and it comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, whilst I think the advances are amazing, especially some of the imaging techniques and things, it's fantastic. I do think that we've actually de-skilled people in some of those skill sets that people of my generation had. Yeah, I guess, I mean, but, but as you said also before, there's so much information coming, just because of that reason, I guess, yeah, as well. Yeah. Because of, like, people have to take in so much now. Like, if I look at some kids today as well, they have so much information that comes to them. That's right. When I think back... Did I, as a kid, get that many much information? No. Yeah. Um, so it is, yeah, it is. Going back to my childhood, uh, you know, as an immigrant, my parents didn't speak English. So we had to find our own way. Mm. And obviously, as we became more conversant with the English language, you know, we used to spend, our Saturday treat was like to go to the library and take mm. books out and bring them home and go through the shelves and find the next story you're going to read. And it, it just brings out different skills that... I don't think you get today with pressing a button. Yeah, but I, I, I've heard that people are going back to libraries, so hopefully, <laughs> like physical well, libraries. I, I, see, I see the odd person on the tube now reading a book. Yeah, I'm exactly. almost embarrassed to read my book on the train <laughs> because everybody else is reading their Kindles or their phone. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think, yeah, I mean, books, obviously, they will, they, hopefully they will they will kind of stay with, with us. and it will They're kind beautiful. Of be, yeah, I love yeah. to be surrounded. I've got a whole room. Yeah, books all around me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool, very cool. So we're, we're we'll go into technology. Well, it can be a different type of innovation. So your favorite scientific or technological innovation? I think we've got to be without a doubt the microscope. The microscope. Okay. I mean, I guess you probably thought I was going to say that. Um, no, no. I think it's yeah. the most important diagnostic tool. I've been in this field for over thirty years, and I still get a thrill and excited. I peer down a microscope and one of the students said, come have a look at this, what do you think it is? Or, and I remember when I was doing my PhD, to see two cells going into mitosis, mm. I've actually got it in my thesis and I've, I don't know why I didn't do it, but I kept saying I was going to blow this up and put it up, that very, you know, life dividing mm. for me and I'm looking at it and to be able to sort of look at cells and to be able to diagnose a healthy cell, an unhealthy cell, I think it was the most amazing invention ever. Yeah. And for me, it always yeah. will be. Yeah, always. And this, I mean, it's it's, it's great that you, you you chose the microscope because actually, if you look at, it has evolved. Obviously, oh, there have been things we've got some like of the most amazing. Yeah, I mean, what we can do now. Techniques. Uh, you know, you can look at things in in dynamic. And you can look at real time. In my days, we couldn't do that. Yeah, but, but what still, we can do now. The concept now, is still very yeah, much. Yeah, it's still that's the, the concept. Same. And yeah. and and that's something really great to it as well is that. Yeah. It, it's a tool that has been evolved yeah, very much, but it has, it has never disappeared in no, the whole time that no, it's been created. No. So, And I mean, they're getting more and more sophisticated. We can go down yeah. right down to the ultra structure. I mean, some of the um, uh, imaging facilities have been developed even within our own mm -hmm. group. You can go down to the cellular level. You can mm -hmm. actually sort of identify a cancerous cell from an old cancerous cell. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite amazing yeah. what we can do today. Yeah. And to watch that evolve has been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um... Next, an album or a song that impacted you in some way and why? I am a great fan of classical music and mm -hmm. I love opera. Okay. But I'm actually not going to choose. I could give you a whole string of my favourite operas and arias, but I'm okay. not going to. Um, ones that perhaps 
people can associate with is the first one is The Wind Beneath My Wings. Okay. Yeah. And I think that was originally written by Jeff Silbar, yeah. Okay. Here we go. But it was recorded by so many artists. Yeah, I know the song. But yeah. the version that I liked most was the version, I think it was sung by Bette Midler in the 1980s yeah. for her yeah. film Beaches. Okay. And the reason that I like that is I can actually relate to that and I can think of lots of people that it relates to. But for me, it's really a kind of message that if you have this desire, this inspiration, even if you feel that you can't actually achieve something, if you have somebody behind you who mm -hmm. believes that you are capable mm -hmm. of doing that, mm -hmm. it's kind of inspirational. Yeah. I've always loved that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have a very close second to that, and that is, uh, have I told you lately I love you? Oh, yeah. yeah. But that, I love the Van Morrison version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think in the kind of world that we live in today, where we're all so hurried, we just take so much for granted. Mm -hmm. And it's only when that person is no longer there, has either left you or has died, that you think, I really love that person, but I never really told them. Yeah. And and I think we shouldn't, and the words are really powerful. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah, yeah. I know the song. I, yeah, I, 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 I've yeah. got them here. I mean, yeah, if I showed true. you there's no one else above you, you fill my heart with gladness. You take away my sadness. You ease my troubles. That's what you do. And if you think about it, in our partners and families and friends, yeah. that's what we look to, don't mm -hmm. we? And all too often, I don't think we say that enough. So every time I hear that song, I think of all the people in my life yeah. that I've, hopefully I've said it to, but also the people I should say it to more often. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that. yeah, that's super beautiful. Yeah. And I, yeah, it reminds me of, uh, we had a meeting yesterday as well with like lots of entrepreneurs and, and it can be a very lonely journey yeah and but one thing that was really important was having friends and family around you that actually support you yeah. to do things no matter what you're doing whether you, no matter what you're doing in life um, and and yeah I'm, think, I'm extremely yeah, fortunate yeah. I mean I had my parents and I've got an older brother a younger sister so I'm the middle person mm. I've got we're extremely, like most Italian fans and other families too, but we're very close, tight-knit. We've always supported each other. We've always been there for each other. And we lost our parents some years back, both our parents. And basically, it's the three of us and the respective families mm. here. And we are extremely close as a family. And, you know, we support each other along all the journeys of our lives. Mm. My brother, for example, has been instrumental in helping me in my management roles because mm. he was very successful in his own business. Mm. And he was, um, you know, he, he sort of guided me, mentored me, supported me, mm. and gave me the kind of advice that, given by somebody who's yeah, to be close, yeah. is very uh, useful. My sister is a lawyer, and she's much more straight to the point and she, she sort of pulls me she pulls the reins down again and says you know you're just making too much of this you know she dissects it out so if you're just making too much of this you know it's just just cut the rest of yeah yeah so like in a sense they are, yeah so in a sense yeah, yeah. they kind of keep me somewhere on track yeah, yeah. That's, that's great and then very important again as well to have that in your life uh, stability in a way as well which often as you said today is often a bit lost because of its such and I and I, I think the the other thing that I'd like to say is there is nothing more powerful I think than family, mm. absolutely, because uh, you know, it's just the joy. Everything is shared. The good times, the bad times, the sad times. But when you're having a downer, you know you know you can go to them and, and they'll kind of pull you out of this. Yeah, yeah. And we do as as, as siblings, we do love having. And all the in-laws that are coming. We yeah. love having a good time. Family gatherings, you know, Italian families are like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is great, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's... It's, it's, I mean, it's I'm a, a very I'm a, good... I'm a great aunt now. Yeah. So I've got nephews, great niece, great nephews. Yeah, yeah. And when we all get together, it's lovely. Yeah, no, but I, I think it's true. I mean, having a support network that the is there for you, no matter what, yeah. um, can, can take you very far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just in your life and Absolutely. in general, no matter yeah, which yeah, level yeah. you're oh, at. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. cool, very nice. Uh, and then finally, um, you're a female scientist professor. Um, do you can you recommend a work of someone that is a female scientist or woman in tech or science that you say this is an amazing person you should look into and why? Yeah. Well, I. Um, I have several professional role models, but the one person who, if you like, has been with me from, certainly when I came here, mm -hmm. I've known her for 15 years, is Professor Susan Standring. She is today Emeritus Professor of Experimental Neurobiology, and she's the former head 
of division of anatomy, cell, and human biology. But most importantly, she's the editor-in-chief of the most authoritative textbook, Grey's Anatomy. Oh. <laughs> and I met um, Susan when I first joined in yeah. 2003. I was invited to uh, oh. a new academic um, sort of evening mm. where the principal invited X number of new academics to dinner mm. and I ended up sitting next to her. Within five minutes of talking to her, I thought, this is who I want to be. Yeah. This is my role model. She was an amazing, and she still is, I meet her for lunch, and she's been involved in some of the discussions for New Organs of Creation. Yeah. And she um, she was a young mother then, she had children, she was juggling with her family life, um, committees, but most importantly, gender issues. She's the person who... I looked to when you're struggling to get on the ladder and whatever, and she used to, I won't use some of the terminologies because it would be, I don't want to embarrass Susan, but her tenacity to succeed in a, in a very tough gender-based environment was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And so still today, uh, you know, she's had her own personal challenges, but she's still very active academically. Yeah. And students and staff and whoever has known her, uh, I mean, she's absolutely inspirational in what she does. Yeah. And for me, she's kind of my female, because she also did research. She, mm. she was obviously clinically trained, but she did a lot of work in... My very first paper when I came here was on peripheral nerve repair. Mm -hmm. was with her. Yeah. And still to this day, even when... Um, we, we worked on the project. We invited her with the artists. And she, they were fascinated by her. We went over to the anatomy department. We spent about three hours. <laughs> and her knowledge was amazing. Yeah. Like, even for me, it was fascinating. Did you meet in the, the Gordon, library? The Gordon Museum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah. there. It's so amazing. I would go so far as I think Susan is, a, is an exemplar female who succeeded against adversity mm. and in a gender-biased arena. And I, she's always been my kind of mentor and my role model. Yeah. even today I would still say that after 15 years yeah, yeah. okay very nice I, I will definitely add her to the so people can look into it um, so yeah that's that's it really it's, it was really amazing to talk to you I mean maybe before we end if people want to get in touch or in some way or the other what, what would be the best way to get in touch with you well, I can give you various links mm -hmm. um, some of the things we're doing. Yeah, I'll add it to the show yeah, notes. And yeah, and you can add it, and yeah. people can just contact me directly. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll do that. And and yeah, thank you so much. I mean, thank you. Best of luck with everything. Thank with you. Your, thank you. Kind of your second research career uh, starting now after being head of department yeah, and yeah. and uh, with the live event as well. On, thank on you. Yes, I'm so very excited very about exciting. that. Mm. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for participating as well. Um, and yeah, hope hope to talk to you soon again. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.